you need to make sure that you keep all the channels open to the best information possible so you can arrive at the best decision for your company or for your department. And inclusivity is essential to that because if you cut off any avenue of available information or expertise that's in the marketplace, you can't get to the best. Let me put it in selfish terms. You owe it to yourself to get the best talent that's in the marketplace. And we all know that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. This is Inclusion Begins With Me, conversations that matter. I'm your host, Dr. Cindy Pace, Vice President and Global Chief Diversity, Equity and Inclusion Officer at MetLife. Our podcast examines the pivotal role people play in creating inclusive workplaces that are built for the future. How does inclusion impact our well-being? Why is it a business imperative? In each episode, we weave together storytelling and research-driven conversations with globally recognized authors, experts, and DEI practitioners. On the show, we tackle steps that each of us can take to advance DEI. It's such a thrill to say this. Welcome to the second season of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. If you joined us last season, I think you'll agree with me that we've set the bar pretty high. We invited phenomenal guests who brought their authentic selves to the podcast, sharing their honest experiences and actionable insights on DEI. But what I'm most excited to share is that we're changing it up and doing more this season. From being a monthly podcast, you'll now hear a new episode every other week. We've asked even more brilliant and fascinating leaders, trailblazers, and changemakers in DEI to join us, starting with Carla Harris. Cindy, I would say that if there's any macro theme to my life, it is really that of always delivering excellence and always going to the top of whatever I could do, because that is probably one of the most important things that my parents instilled in me. You know, my mother used to always say, you know, be so outstanding that there is no debate. And I think that that was her way of kind of telling me that the world was not fair. You know, she didn't say, oh, because you're you're a woman or oh, because you're black, you're not going to get your due. She would say, be so outstanding that there is no debate. And she used to say, if you want to get an A, go for the A+. So if you get shaved a little bit, you'll still have your A. And again, if you think about it, that was a genius way of saying you won't always get your right due. But if you're so out there, there's no way anybody can really take it all the way from you. 
So every time I tried to do anything, whether it was trying out for basketball, whether it was my academics, whether it was singing, no matter what it was, I was always trying to be the best that I could be. I was fortunate and blessed enough to have a number of offers coming out of Harvard Business School. But of all the firms that I spent time with, Morgan Stanley was the one where I felt like I could largely be Carla. And even though I was, you know, the ripe old age of 24, I instinctively knew because I had learned in my Wall Street internship at 19 that if you could largely be you, that's where you had the opportunity to to really soar and to excel. You know, <laughs> I'm just listening in and, and thinking about so many things that conspired in your favor. The foundation, though, as you said, was your performance. And, you know, no dispute on that. Just deliver high performance. If I step back a little bit in your origin story, you know, you dropped the word Harvard. Mm-hmm. And so I just have to go back and pick that up a little bit. So, Carla, did you know, hands down, that was your first choice for college and business school? Or, you know, was it revealed to you? And did you have support to try to go to an Ivy League school? Did you have support as you pursued your education and then, you know, going into investment banking, that first internship? Can you talk a little bit about the people around you? that supported you along that early career journey? Because I think that's what I'm hearing a lot from the generations coming in now. They're expecting to have people in their corner. So what does that look like? Cindy, I've been talking about this story for you know a, a couple of decades because it's mm-hmm. one of the messages that I give to young people. Never let anybody else count you out. And for Pete's sake, don't count yourself out. And I had no aspirations of going to an Ivy League school, Cindy. Zero, woohoo, none. I will tell you, I always knew that I would go to a college. That was my aspiration to do that. And because again, what is the uh, definition of success? Once you're in high school, it's to get into college, to go to college Mm -hmm. so that you will have a path to a great career. So that's what I knew. Carla grew up in Jacksonville, Florida. She went to an outstanding high school, which was predominantly white. I didn't even think about the Ivy League schools until my junior-ish year when I kept hearing my classmates talk among themselves, not to me, talk among themselves saying, Hey, are you going to apply to University of Pennsylvania? Are you going to apply to Harvard? Oh, I'm thinking about Princeton or I'm thinking about Cornell. Meanwhile, in our junior and the fall of our senior year, some of these colleges are actually coming to campus to recruit. And I'm thinking, well, I heard about that school. Let me sign up to go to that one. And then the magic thing happened. I went to see my guidance counselor one day and I said, I'm going to apply to Cornell and to some of the schools where I had gone to see the recruiter. And he said, don't apply to any of those Ivy League schools. And I said, why not? And he said, because they're very difficult to get in. Don't worry. You'll go to a good college. You'll get in a college, but don't worry about that. And I said, well, what do you need? He said, you need good grades. You need to be involved in activities. You have to give good recommendations and you have to have good SAT scores. And I'm like, I have great SAT scores. I got a 4.0 GPA. And I'm involved in a whole bunch of things and I'm working because at that point I had my job at McDonald's. So I was working after school and I was working on the weekends. And um, 
And I am negatively motivated, which is another macro theme throughout Mm. my life, Cindy. When you tell me I can't do something, I'm all over it. So (laughs) the fact that he said, don't apply, was my trigger, if you will. And I was an obedient young lady. So he told me to apply to all the Florida schools. And I did. I applied to all the Florida schools. And I applied to the Ivy League schools that I was interested in, which was Cornell and Harvard and Princeton. And I got into them all. So, which is why I leave the message with young people, don't let anybody else count you out. And for Pete's sake, don't count yourself out. Because here's the deal. These elite schools are looking for a diverse class when they admit a freshman class. And you don't know whether it's going to be your grades, your SAT scores, the fact that you are a black female water polo player, or you are a Hispanic golfer, or you are an expert knitter or a crochet person. You don't know what it's going to be about your person that will make them say, oh, that person may round out our class, right? So don't count yourself out. You don't know what it's going to be. And the message is so powerful that diversity does matter. Absolutely. And uh, universities, colleges want also what we want in corporate America, diverse, equitable, and inclusive spaces for their students to be able to speak up, to learn, to contribute, right? Because, you know, I think we think about, oh, going to college is just there to learn, but you're also there to, as you talk about, which we're going to pivot into, to learn those leadership skills. Absolutely. Um, Learn what winning is, is about and how it looks. Learn what your superpowers are, what you're good at. And you have that safe environment. And it's even better when you're around people that are different from you. No question. Because you can become a sponge, right? And and absorb all of that. And I wanted to know, what do you think when we focus on advancing women in leadership, Black women, women of color in leadership is missing? What do you think is going on? Yeah, I would say that one of the reasons that, well, first of all, let's think back in the 70s and early 80s. It's not like you had a large number of Black women that were coming out of Harvard Business School or Wharton or Stanford or University of Chicago. So let's just say you had a smaller pool of women. That's number one. Number two, Cindy, up until I'd say, you know, the late 90s, early 2000s, there wasn't a lot of information in the marketplace about to your point, what was missing or what were the other components of the success equation. And almost every company that would go to any business school, let alone Harvard Business School, always talked about meritocracy and a meritocratic culture and environment was the holy grail, but yet nobody was offering that. Okay. And nobody was calling a thing a thing and saying that because the things that it took to be successful in these environments, and one of the most important things are relationships and sponsorship. And nobody was talking about that even when I graduated, Cindy. It wasn't until 1990 that I started even using the word sponsorship. Nobody was using that word. You heard champion. You heard advocate. But nobody was talking about sponsorship and the idea of somebody spending their currency on you behind closed doors. Nobody was talking about the fact that all of the important decisions about your career are made behind closed doors in a room where you are not present compensation, promotion, new assignments. Nobody was talking about the fact that you have to, in fact, ask for the order. 
And certainly in black cultures, you know, we were socialized to kind of do great work, keep your head down, work hard, and somebody will pick you. Mm-hmm. And, you know, as you know, I debate that and say, no, 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 you need to say you'd like that opportunity or you want to know what it takes to be eligible for that opportunity. But as I like to put it, you have to ask for the order. We tend to wait for somebody to pick us. Well, guess what? Somebody else is asking for the order. So why would anybody pick you? Exactly. Culturally, you know, we are not taught really to trust people from that perspective because Mm -hmm. trust is broken many times if you are African-American and if you are a woman. So now let's double it if you are African-American and a woman. Trust is broken many, many times by the time you get to the workforce. So there's a level of skepticism and cynicism that may not even be conscious that you approach relationships differently or you hold something back. And unfortunately, it's that thing that you're holding back. That's the thing that somebody would connect with. But of course, you are protecting yourself. Mm -hmm. Anybody in their right mind would do that. That's so important, you know, a lot to unpack here. But one of the things, you know, saying at the time that you're coming through, basically your class at Harvard Business School and the other schools, the other top tier elite schools at that time, you all are pioneers because you're breaking through and you're breaking into a system to your point that is touting meritocracy. But as we arrive, as you arrive into those environments, uh, you quickly realize that there's a lot of work to be done. So it becomes bigger than just being the best. Mm -hmm. It becomes being a trailblazer being a path finder. And I think where I've seen your books transition from expect to win, to strategize to win, to lead to win, is really talking about purpose and the role that leadership plays in purpose. So can you tell us a little bit about how did you, you started writing the books, right? And then you had this theme on winning. Why is that theme important? And why lead to win now? Mm -hmm. So I had the aha moment in the fourth quarter of 2018, Cindy, that we were in a very different leadership context than the one that I grew up in. Because growing up or i.e. building your career in the late 80s, early 90s and 2000s, the leadership context, the backdrop was the my way or the highway type leadership context. You know, as I like to say, the joke is your boss says jump. Your answer is how high. But I realize now we were in a context where if you say jump, the millennials are going to say why. So now we're in a context where you have an employee base that likes to question authority. They don't really trust authority. They really want to know why they're doing what they're doing, i.e. what's the purpose of me doing the action that I'm doing. Whereas boomers were in a context in the late 80s, early 90s and 2000s. It was an assignment which simply meant you executed, period, full stop. And so I realized that we were also in a situation where there was a complete mismatch. So now you have boomers and Xers who did not get a lot of feedback along their career journey. They were told, keep your head down, work hard. If you don't get fired, you know you're doing okay then. (laughs) Right. But the millennials and Zers need the feedback just to keep going. It is their inspiration. As Gen Z and younger millennials join the workforce, everyone has to learn how to work together 
despite very different life experiences. Leading to win is about adapting to new challenges and expectations. Carla's other books are Expect to Win and Strategize to Win. Fast forward 18 months later, you layer on a pandemic where people are not in the office and yet they're being expected to produce, you know, in the spring of 2020. And now you have two powerful shifts that are happening. You have, oh, let me add the social unrest that most of us have not seen in our lifetime because either we weren't alive in the 1960s or we were toddlers. Mm -hmm. So now that has created two powerful shifts. One is the amplification of voice and choice. And two is the change in the employee-employer contract. Yes. So I realized as I got phone calls from people in the C-suite in April and May of all industries that these leaders were struggling. How do I lead in this moment? How do I speak in this moment? We don't talk about these kinds of things. Do I have to say anything? How do I keep my people motivated and inspired when they're not in the office? How do I keep my best people? How do we not go backwards when we've made so much progress in DEI? What do we do? So I'm getting all these questions in my, in my home, Cindy. And I thought, oh my goodness, I, th- I think I need to say something because I could hear the fear. Mm -hmm. I'm clutching my pearls and I'm thinking, oh my gosh, he's scared. Oh my gosh, she's scared. And and for me, it was all crystal clear. So that's what motivated me to write the book to say, here's the kind of leader that you need to be today in order to be a powerful, impactful, influential leader, because it's different than what it was when you were on your way to becoming a leader. Carla says her book isn't just for established leaders. She's also writing for aspiring and upcoming leaders. Millennials and Zers have a strong entrepreneurial appetite. And here's what I've learned after five years of working with early stage entrepreneurs. They have a great idea that can turn into a multi-billion dollar company, but they have no experience with respect to interviewing and building a team. None. They're 32, they're 38, they're 42, but they haven't done this before. And if they make a bad hire, early in their company's life, it could be catastrophic because that cash matters. So I was like, oh, there's a whole nother group of leaders that that need some information. The one thing, Cindy, that I repeat, two things that I repeat Mm -hmm. in all three books is about authenticity and about fear. And the reason is I feel strongly, as you know, your authenticity is your distinct competitive advantage. But the temptation always, especially in large organizations, is to try to be someone else if it's not going that well for you. It's a huge temptation. But the further you get away from your core, the more you create a competitive disadvantage. And then the second thing is fear. It's the thing that is the greatest impediment to us achieving outside success. And it's sneaky. That's why I keep talking about it, because sometimes (laughs) you don't even realize that it's the thing that's holding you back. You know, you don't realize I'll start with fear and then go to authenticity. Uh, You don't realize it's the thing that's holding you back. But as Rocky Balboa says, (laughs) he said this in the first creed and he said it in, in another one of the movies, but it's really about it's you against you. And when you look in that mirror right? The biggest barrier to your success will be you. That's right. And I think to your point, fear sits at the center of that and it can look 
different because <laughs> you can think that it's outside forces telling you you're not good enough or you shouldn't go for that role or you're not performing well. You don't realize that it's actually fear. Absolutely. That's playing out. So you talk about authenticity and I think that that is so important and it's important also from a, a diversity lens because this is when who you are works in your favor. And I think if you, I talk about a simulation actually being the wrong power strategy to use. But if you come from older generations like myself, I'm a Gen Xer, that was the strategy is to kind of just fit in. Let me just let me just fit in. Let me just be like everyone else. Let me look like everyone else. Let me try to talk like everyone else. And all will be well. And to your point, all is not well because you've left who you are outside. And and so this ability to be authentic, to bring your best self. I always say bring your best self to work, not just bring yourself Mm -hmm. because, you know, we may not like all the selves, (laughs) but bring your best (laughs) self to the workplace rooted in authenticity, right? right. Rooted in bring that energy, bring that passion, bring that desire to win, that expectation to win, that aspiration to win in advance. So now when we we get to lead to win and you writing this book at such a, a critical time, what would you say the importance of inclusion, inclusive leadership is for those of us in leadership positions leading a multi-generational workforce Mm -hmm. when everything is still changing. So the only thing constant is change. And there's so much uncertainty in business right now. So how do we pull more of the lever of inclusion through our leadership? Yes. The context that you just talked about is the predominant rationale for inclusivity. Things are changing. Things are uncertain. You know, you can't figure out you know, who has the best ideas because innovation is happening so quickly, you will not have the right answer as the leader because, as you know, there is no monopoly on intelligence. So the argument for inclusivity is to give yourself the best shot as the leader of getting to the best market solution or the best internal answer because you have availed yourself of all of the intellect that's out there. So, Think about this, Cindy, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, the real critical characteristic of a great leader was the person who was an expert, the person that knew everything. That's how they got to the leadership seat because they were expected to be the expert. There's no way you can be an expert today when what is the definition of market you know, in December of 2022 is very different than what the definition of market is in February of 2023, because somebody in 2022 is already trying to disrupt you. That wonderful thing that you brought to the market, somebody's already trying to think about the next version or a better version, which may exist as fast as two months later. So you can't really think about yourself as the expert. That's not what you're expected to be as a leader today. But what is expected of you is that you can be the decision maker. So you need to make sure that you keep all the channels open to the best information possible so you can arrive at 
the best decision for your company or for your department. And inclusivity is essential to that because if you cut off any avenue of available information or expertise that's in the marketplace, you can't get to the best. So you you owe it to yourself. Let me put it in selfish terms. Mm -hmm. You owe it to yourself to get the best talent that's in the marketplace. And we all know that talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. Talent is evenly distributed. Opportunity is not. Let's sit with that phrase for a moment. Good leaders have to find and cultivate talent. You have to invest even further to make sure that you're getting access to that intellect and that experience that may not be consistent with your normal channels of relationships. And you have to create the environment. You're the only one that can create the environment as the leader where your people feel that you value their contribution. And even more seriously, that you value their try. Yes. When people know that you value the try, they're going to keep bringing it to you. The best thinking, the experience, their networks, somebody else that they know that did this and did that. But if you're cutting off that contribution and you must be mindful about that, then you're not going to get it. I'm going to give you a quick example. And I use this example recently of a leader that took away everybody's voice and they didn't even realize it. I was on a call one day and I happened to be on the call because I was out of the office and everybody else was in the room. And a leader said on the call, I want to get you guys opinion about whether or not we should add this among one of the core tenets of what we're trying to do. I don't really think we should, but what do you guys think? The end. And I heard, <laughs> right. We will right. not be speaking now. <laughs> exactly. Sydney. I was on the phone and I heard it and I said, he just took away everybody's voices. Nobody's going to say anything. And nobody did. And here's the deal, Cindy. I'm not sure I would have heard that if I had been in the room. I see. Because I would have been distracted by watching everybody else's body language. But because I was not in the room, had no connection, my ear was especially clear. And I could hear it. Immediately, I said, oh. He just took away everybody's voices. Nobody's going to say anything and nobody did. So these are some of the things you have to be aware of if you want to be an inclusive leader, that you are creating an environment where people feel like you, you value the contribution, you value the tribe. So the thing that I normally say in my speeches, and you've heard me say this, is if you want to show up as an inclusive leader, try this four times. Start a conversation with your team and say, I'll start us because I'm the most senior person in the room, well, not because I'm the smartest person in the room. But now, Abby, I want you to add on to this. Bill, I'd like you to add on to what Abby is saying. Chandra, I'd like you to play devil's advocate. Blow this argument up. What did they miss? What's the other side? And mm -hmm. Damon, I want you to add on to what Chandra has done. You've done two very important things. One is that you said to each one of them, I see you, because you invited each of them into the conversation by name. The second thing that you've done is that you said, I hear you. Because you not only invited them in, but you invited them specifically to support or refute the argument that was on the floor. But the intended consequence of what you've done is now everybody's fingerprints are on the blueprint. Mm -hmm. Good, bad, or ugly. Everybody's invested in the success or failure of that endeavor. But more importantly, Cindy, you've created an environment now where your team feels comfortable 
pressure testing each other. And that's what you want. You don't want people to be, well, I can't really refute Bill or I can't say this <laughs> or I don't think that's right, but I'm not going to say anything because I don't want him to attack me the next time we're having a conversation. You as the leader curate that moment where everybody feels like they're in it together and that you value that interaction. That's the power that you have as a leader to create that dynamic. That is so powerful. I mean, I'm just energized hearing you play that out uh, for us. And it reminds me of an early experience in my career that I had. I was a clinical researcher at Salve Pharmaceuticals, and this was my first corporate job. So I was a, I was a scientist working in a corporate workplace. Very exciting. And I remember our medical director, I was doing phase 3B, phase 4 trials in women's health. Our medical director, Dr. Yalmar Lagoste, I just thought this was one of the most brilliant people um, I had met. And uh, along with my boss, uh, Dr. Brenda Wieda, I, these, I was just like, how did I get this job? And I remember I had to go into Dr. Lagasse's office to have a conversation about an issue I was facing on a clinical trial. And I just wanted, at that time, it was like, give me the orders. What am I supposed to do? And I remember walking in and I said, here's the problem. And I sat there and he looked at me and I was like, okay, so uh, Yalmar, here's the problem again. And he said, Cindy, I need you to get up and I want you to walk outside my door and I want you to look at the quote that I have on my door. And I was like, he has a quote on his door? I never noticed that. I was like, okay. And I'm just all, okay. And I go out and I do it. And the quote said, bring me solutions. I went and sat back down and he said, so Cindy, what do you propose that we do? Mm-hmm. Let's talk this out. And it went from me looking for the answer directly from him to him coaching me. And it was a slight, have you thought about this? And then I was off. Mm-hmm. And it made me feel so energized. But I also knew when I go into Yalmar Lagasse's office. <laughs> Bring the solution. <laughs> Bring the solutions. And so what's so important now as leaders, I, I think we're in a time, like you said, there's a lot of uncertainty. We also have to unlearn behaviors Absolutely. of how to lead. And these inclusive leadership behaviors become more and more important because it's not about us having the answer. We may not ever have the answer. Our team may know what's going on. They may be looking at the external forces in the environment and ringing the alarm to say, hey, we need to do something. Mm-hmm. And if we're not creating that environment, to your point, where people feel comfortable speaking up, then we're not going to not only have great decision-making and problem-solving, we will not tap the innovation mm-hmm. well that we need to be tapping to be able to, to produce the products and services and the needs for our customers and clients. So it's essential As we close out, any advice to what do we do to those of us who've been around, who've learned a different way of leading, how to pivot now and pick up the key tenets of lead to win? Yes. Give yourself permission 
to continue to evolve as a leader and recognize that we are in a different environment and it's going to take different skills in order to be successful as a leader. And I talk about in chapter six of Lead to Win being an intentional leader because it doesn't just happen because you're senior, because you've been someplace for 20 plus years or because somebody gives you a title or a seat of authority. It happens because you intentionally show up every day thinking about how you're going to motivate and inspire your people Understanding that you have the responsibility to develop your people, understanding that you have the responsibility to engage and create other leaders because that's how you amplify your impact in the organization. The days are gone, Cindy, where you can get to the corner office, the big office and sit up in the ivory tower. Leadership is going to be about one-on-one combat. It's going to be high engagement. And I've told leaders, be prepared to spend far more time than you did pre-pandemic engaging with your people if you want to retain your best people. The great key and unlock to the great resignation and quiet quitting is going to be leadership. Mm. Every leader needs to be able to have it roll off their tongue, the value proposition of working at that particular organization. You need to have it roll off your tongue and all leaders need to be able to say that because now I am going to define culture as an employee by my engagement with you. No longer is it going to be what the company defines as culture in the annual report or what Mm -hmm. they put in the lobby or what they put in the elevator. It's going to be about what I feel in my interactions and my engagements every day. And that's going to be about leadership. Well, you know, there you have it. Leadership is essential. Uh, We all need to get the book. And I would be remiss if I didn't get one more of Carla's pearls around communication. You know, Carla, I think you have the uncanny ability to not only hold the big platforms, the big stage, you engage very well one-on-one in groups, in meetings, And I think communication is so key now because we are not all in the same spaces at the same time with our hybrid workplaces. You can be face-to-face. As you said, you were on the call. You may be working remotely. What piece of advice can you give us on how to communicate better as leaders and how we can use that like you do as a motivator, as a way to inspire our teams to stick with it, to stick with us Mm -hmm. through this uncertainty? Yes, two things, listening and transparency. What makes you a great communicator? The first thing is that you are a great listener and you hear what people are saying and what they're not saying, which gives you the ability to be responsive to that, not just to talk all out here, but to be responsive to what they told you because everybody values being heard. And the second is around transparency, right? I'm going to give it to you straight, no chaser, or I am going to pretty it up and put it in political speak, or let me give you the backdrop of why I'm saying what I'm saying. Transparency helps a lot, Cindy, because it is an essential ingredient to building trust. And you need trust in the environment that we're in now as a leader if people are going to follow you. It's so true. And I've talked so much about trust with uh, Michael Bush, CEO of Great Place to Work. And 
you can't even be talking about psychological safety if you haven't talked about trust. And that's why the trust survey, when you are trying to get certified as a great place to work, is at the heart. And they're like, we're going to ask your people. No, we don't want you to just send us your data. (laughs) We want to ask your people, do they feel that they're in an environment where they trust each other, where they trust the leaders. So you're right, it's essential, and we need to really spend more time uh, building it. Carla, I could go on and on. There's so much more I want to ask you, but I think the conversation we've had today has really been one that matters. Is there any final thing you want to close us out with? Any nuggets, any Carla's pearls, and then we'll call it a wrap. Okay. Well, I actually want to take the last minute to applaud you and the work that you're doing at MedLife, especially keeping diversity, equity, and inclusion front and center on everybody's minds. Because as you know, it has been something in financial services that's been a bit of a bull market phenomenon. When things are going well, lots of focus, lots of investment, you know, lots of conversation and actually lots of action. But the minute we get in a bear market environment, tough environments like we're in now, it doesn't go away, but the intensity tends to wane. And you have done a stellar job in making it a pillar of the strategy, which is also essential for us to be successful because people have looked at it not as essential to strategy or competitiveness for far too long. It's been a nice thing to do, right thing to do, moral thing to do. And unless you embrace it, as a commercial imperative, you won't ever really be able to extract the yield from the investment around DEI. And and I think you've done a great job there. So that's my final word, Cindy. Thank you. I'm going to send that in as my performance review for this year. <laughs> Thank you, Carla. Well, I mean what I say and I say what I mean. So go right ahead. Awesome. Thanks again. And we look forward to having you back. Everyone, Carla Harris, don't forget to pick up the book lead to win. This is a time for leadership, as Carla has told us, and we have to step up to the plate and make sure that we are delivering. Thanks, Carla. Thank you. Thank you all for joining me on this episode of Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter. You can learn more about Carla Harris at carlaspearls.com. At MetLife, we are committed to diversity, equity, and inclusion, and we believe making a difference in the lives of our customers, community, and the world around us is altogether possible. Learn more and join us at MetLife.com. The link is in our show notes. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast, Inclusion Begins With Me, Conversations That Matter, wherever you listen to podcasts. I hope you also take time to rate and leave our show a review. Before we go, we'd like to thank our podcast partner, Human Group Media, who helped produce this show. That's it for today. I hope you join me next time.